Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. It's Af Malhotra, wherever you are in the world, in whatever order. I'm thrilled to have you on the show once again. Uh, I have an incredible guest with me today, and it's funny because the guest today is a fantastic, prolific author and has released this book that was referred to me by a close relative of mine who happens to be a doctor. And him and I were sitting down a while ago, probably over a year ago, talking about hope, talking about this idea of, uh, you know, we live in hope and we hope that the world will be better. And we were figuring out whether hope is enough or we need to take action and we need to have hope and action. And we're having this excellent debate. And then my cousin pulled out this book called Active Hope. He said, you must, you must read this. Uh, look at this book, Active Hope, and I've got it here. And uh, I have been told that there's a new version, so you will buy the new version. Active Hope uh, with um, uh, this sort of um, a subtext, which is, you know, how to face the mess we're in without going crazy. Uh, sounds uh, sounds very, very true to life. It's by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston. And today I have the wonderful Chris Johnston on the show. Chris, thank you for coming on Straight Talk. What a pleasure it is to have you here with me today. Thank you, Af. It's a real pleasure to be here. Excellent. So we're going to um, dig as deep as we can and, and pick that brain of yours with so much knowledge and, and wisdom and tools and techniques and approaches that can help us become more resilient, that can help us deal with some of this crazy uncertainty and chaos. And of course, in the world we live in right now, this moment, there is so much coming our way. And I'm sure you've seen this, you know, war, um, an economic crisis once again, um, inflation, you know, the, the pockets of the, those who struggle the most have just been uh, shorted. I mean, we, you know, we see people who are struggling with the cost of living here in the UK, especially, and in Europe and in other parts of the world. You know, in the workplace, we're seeing the, the uh, great resignation play out. Loads of people leaving their jobs, which was, you know, the um, uh, the outcome of COVID when people had a realization of some sort to say, well, actually, I'm, I don't want to sign up to this way of doing things. There's the quiet quitters who have now been discovered, who are disinterested in, in works sort of just carrying on. You know, they are the 86% of the Gallup survey that doesn't really want to go to work every day. Um, We've got uh, organizations dealing with the future of work, like this mobile environment where we're doing, you know, Zoom calls and Teams calls, and that's how you're managing people now, like just above above the, the chest. You know, that's how you know people. I mean, I was at a corporate today, and I discovered that this corporate, uh, some of the leaders and managers haven't actually even met some of their employees. Today was the first day after six or seven months they've met some of their work workforce, their teammates. Unbelievable. And it, it got me thinking, I just thought, well, in the old days, um, when I say old days, I'm talking three years ago, pre-COVID, you know, we had privileges because we used to meet people face-to-face. -face. We used to communicate face-to-face. -face. We used to transmit energy, pick up body language, you know, uh, draw from one another. And now you've got to find this virtual world uh, and make it your default without choice and figure out how you can exist in it and be as effective and productive, whether you're a leader, you're a manager, you're you know part of the team. And resilience, making friends with uncertainty, dealing with upheavals, 
the unknown is, I would say, at its peak to some extent, of course, compared to, to yesteryears. So today is all about, you know, trying to figure out and learn from you as to what's, what are you seeing out there as being the new uh, set of approaches that can address and help us deal with this uncertainty, to be more resilient, because we're all trying, we're all desperately trying, but it's not easy. And of course, you've 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 told me that you've got a new version of the book uh, that I highly recommend our straight talkers purchase and buy. And I also want to ask you, uh, well, let's start with, tell me why you've got another version of the book. Wasn't this one powerful enough? I, I thought it was brilliant, but there's obviously something special about the new book. So let's start with that. And then uh, we'll have an open dialogue. We'll just, you know, um, navigate through this pathway ourselves. Yes, it's so helpful hearing you, Af, and because what you've described are some of the difficulties that people face and the fact that there's a sense that what we face now, you talked about the old days of over three years ago, you know, pre-COVID, but there's many ways our world is changing. There's a, a war in Europe. There's a um, climate catastrophe is kind of a, a more real to people with weather extremes floods and droughts and wildfires and um, research when, when they do surveys they ask people um, do you feel the what the future we're heading into is getting better or worse yeah. a big majority feel it's getting worse and so the subtitle of our book how to face the mess we're in that's what we look at, how to face the mess we're in. And we changed the subtitle. We, we, we brought a, a new edition out last year, which was like the 10th anniversary edition. We we're just thinking 10 years on, you know, things have changed so much. Um, it's uh, not just COVID, but, but other areas too. And one of the biggest changes is a sense of loss of hope in the future that people looking at the future we're heading into, there was a survey done of young people, over 10,000 young people from um, many different countries. And the majority of them agreed with the statement that humanity is doomed. And if you look into the future and you have that sense that we're on a downhill slope of decline, things are gonna get more difficult, it, it, it's heart sinker. We live at a time of rising levels of depression and anxiety, has big impact on mental health, but it also is this sense of how do I invest in the life I'm living in now? How do I put in effort mm. if I don't feel that I'm actually gonna uh, lead to what I really hope for? And you talked about yeah. the great resignation, the quiet quitters, people stepping back from the workforce. But that's also happening in schools as well. It's happening in education. People saying, well, if we're going down the tubes, what's the point? And mm -hmm. I, I um, it may sound like a gloomy place to begin, but I'm a great fan of adventure stories like, you know, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. But but I, I'm also been deeply involved in well-being, work for well-being, really for about 40 years now. I'm actually I'm in my early 60s now and I got involved in well-being movement as a medical student in the early 1980s. And so it's a big interest for me. It's like, how do we live lives that we say, yeah, this is going well? And how can we have the experience of thriving or even flourishing when we're facing extreme adversity? And I, I work, um, my work around resilience is really a, being alongside people facing difficult situations and looking at how do I face this 
in a way where I'm contributing to an upslope of recovery rather than right. just saying, well, there's nothing I can do. And so in a way that the resignation can also be part of the downslope, because what you lose with resignation is also meaning and purpose in life, which are key factors for well-being. People who have a strong right. sense of meaning and purpose in life, they not only tend to sleep better at night, have better mood, better physical health, they tend to live longer as well. And so um, so, so th there's these two different kind of um, streams that I'm wanting to bring together here. One is about personal well-being. You know, how do we have good mm -hmm. lives? How do we have lives rich in meaning, sense of vitality, sense of meaningfulness in our lives? At the same yeah. time as this question, how do we face the mess we're in? Because there's a big mess yeah. going on. And one of the things we did with the new edition is that we changed the subtitle. We changed the subtitle. It used to be how to face the mess we're in without going crazy. Now, actually, a lot of people are facing the mess we're in, but they're feeling completely Correct. sunk by it. It's like, how do I even look at this without sinking into depression or feeling charged up with anxiety? How do I sleep at night? Um, and so the new subtitle is how to face the mess we're in with unexpected resilience and creative power. Wow. Now, okay. Please go ahead. Nodding, and I'm just wondering how that's landing with you. Uh, so, if you is that something attractive to you? Unexpected resilience yeah. and creative power. Yeah, I mean the the unexpected resilience is uh, interesting. The way I read into that, of course, and this is all unscripted. Uh, so, you know, we're having a dialogue right now, straight talk right now. For me, unexpected resilience is really about surprising yourself to some extent, where you end up being resilient when you thought you couldn't. So it's like you shock yourself where you're like, really, I got through this? How did I, how did I get through this? And it's a moment of, I mean, almost a, a type of breakthrough, I would say. That's how I read with a positive growth mindset. I read unexpected resilience to be that. Creative power, uh, that's a really two very interesting words coming together. Uh, it's nice that you've put creative with power because being creative means you have accepted that you've got to try and do things differently and the status quo won't work and what worked yesterday won't work tomorrow, for example. And so you accept that I've got to think out of the box. I've got to, like in, in India, there's a term which is very popular, uh, jugar, jugar. And jugar is basically create creativity, inventiveness, where, well, a normal product won't work. I've got to budget and figure out how I can still get the same outcome. And it doesn't have to be expensive. It can be super quick, it can be pragmatic and, and, and practical. So that's how I read it. And I'm intrigued because I want to know more. So tell me more about this unexpected resilience. Uh, what, what does it actually mean? And, and what's your thinking around it? Yeah. First of all, I just want to say, I love what you've got it. You know, I'm so pleased we're recording this because what you got with unexpected resilience, there's that sense of maybe I can surprise myself. And right. when I teach resilience courses, I, I, I work a lot with self-talk. Self-talk is like, how do we speak to ourselves? What are the little phrases? So when we're in a tight corner, the little phrase going, maybe I can surprise myself, mm. leads in a different direction to, 
this is just so awful. You know, that there are things that are just so awful. And I work a lot with um, acceptance and commitment therapy. It's an approach to therapy proven to be helpful in treatment of depression and anxiety. But actually, I just love the title, acceptance and commitment mm. therapy. And I have this equation, A plus C equals T. So when you can approach a situation with acceptance is not about approval. It's more about acknowledgement. I, I'm taking in the reality of what's going on when we were talking before um, we started you, you talked about climate realism yeah. being part of the brief of straight talk so accepting you know we face what we face we feel what we mm. feel but then we have choices about how we respond and that's where the commitment comes because our choices are guided by our values by what's important to us mm. and I, mm. I, I love hope as a directional signal like whatever you face it can go different ways and um in some of the resilience work i i draw on the pen resilience program developed at the university of pennsylvania they they ask three questions they say whatever you face ask what's the best that can happen here what's the worst that can happen here and what's most likely to happen here and i i teach that with the hand um one of my um uh, Lynn, a woman on one of my courses, she taught me this. She did it with school children. She said, she said, you know, you look at your hand, you say, what's the best? You know, you stick your thumb up at that. What's the worst? It's important to consider. If we didn't consider the worst, we wouldn't have fire drills. We wouldn't have fire right. preparedness. You know, you think of the worst that can happen and then you seek ways to make that less likely or less harmful. And so oh, right, it's okay. about risk awareness. So what's the worst? What's the best? What's most likely? But don't stop there. With active hope, you're saying, what do I hope for and how do I be active in making that more likely? So, mm. okay, so so in terms of looking at this, okay, what's the best, what's the worst, what's most likely? Active hope is about how we, um, how we play a role in the story of mm. making our hopes more likely. Mm. Mm. It's, it's, it reminds me of this, um sort of time when and it, you know everyone goes through different phases in their lives and whether it's work life or home life and so on and so on and it reminds me of this time where you know i personally went through a lot of health trauma and uh, and have been for many many years and what trauma does as you know uh, it uh, it can recalibrate you you know it can recalibrate you it can transform you in so many different ways once you've got through it of course while you're in the, the the thick of it you don't really have time for reflection or connecting the dots but i think later on through the passage of time you have this ability to reconsider uh, reflect and introspect and so on and um uh, when you talked about earlier on you were talking about these questions and it might seem terribly simple for a lot of people what you've just said. But let me just reinforce that point. Throughout my course of illness and difficulties and ups and downs in life, funnily enough, I do use those three questions all the time, all the time. I just most recently, there was something that happened in my work life. And I, and I usually actually start with the worst case scenario, not because I'm negative. I just say, right, if I can accept to your point, the worst case scenario, I'll, I'll immerse myself in it for a bit. Then fine. I mean, that's the that's like the worst that can ever happen. So, like, don't overthink it because we have a habit, don't we, of um, over exaggerating situations in our minds. 
And so I do that all the time just to reinforce what you're saying. And then, of course, the best case, which is amazing, and then the likely case. And of course, do you often find that, I mean, not everyone can do this, but it reminds me of scenario planning, the, the old sort of scenario planning technique that Shell developed. And then, of course, was shared with the rest of the world, where you actually have some probabilities against it. That kind of helps sometimes to say, well, what's the likelihood that it's going to be really bad? Or am I just like making this stuff up in my head? How do you see that? I mean, is that is that also a dimension of it that you see being used by people? Yeah, and we do this all the time. It's looking into the future, and the psychological term for this is prospecting. Prospecting, you know, you you can have uh, you can have introspection looking inside, but prospection is where you're kind of looking forward and you're considering different possibilities. And uh, two common ones are hopes and fears. So hopes is around, you know, what do I hope for? What are some of the better ways it can go? Not necessarily the best, but maybe that would be quite good, or even that would be better than that. And so, what are some of the better ways? this can go and this is really about pathways thinking thinking about different possible pathways into the future um but but also um yeah so that so, so there's there's different routes that we can follow but then it's also saying what's my role in this what's my mm. role in this and you ask what what do i mean by unexpected resilience and to draw that out a bit more and one of the things is just recognizing that maybe we can surprise ourselves that when we hear though what's the worst that can happen voice and get stuck on that um it's called awfulizing awfulizing is where our mind gets kind of stuck on i think of it the the the, the lower leg um mm. I, you know the the kind of worst possibility um and and you can kind of have a inner video in your brain going because of this therefore that and when this happens, it will lead to that, and then it will lead to that. So you have this kind of chain of events in your mind that goes from mm. bad to worse, and 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 you and and that that that's fear. So so yes, we do this scenario planning all the time, thinking about what are well, some of the different yeah. ways things can go. It's a kind of natural thing, but but also yeah. sometimes it's it's scorned, it's looked down upon because if you think about the best, you're seen as just a dreamer. And if you think about the worst, you're accused of being a worrier. And so some people say, oh, we should think more positively. But actually what psychology, the kind of advances is, is, is kind of a step ahead of positive thinking is the term is flexible thinking. Flexible thinking, and I think it's like we have flexible necks. So you can kind of look up and you can look down and you can look around. And we've right. got flexible necks because it's got survival advantage. <laughs> but we can do the same yeah. with our thinking. We can look up and say, hey, what's the best? what's the worst look down you know if you're walking across um a floor that was strewn with um things that you could trip over you want to be looking down and be aware of the things that you can trip over if you always look up and say you know let's look on the bright side you might end up tripping over risks that you had kind of um taken out of view so there's value in both mm. views but it's the flexibility is the thing it's being able to mm -hmm. move and so in scenarios one of the key things here is recognizing that we don't know we don't know how things will go Joanna Macy, Correct. amazing woman that I co-wrote Active Hope with. She's 93 now, you know, amazing elder teacher, wow. important mentor for me. She uses this term radical uncertainty and radical mm -hmm. uncertainty is about just acknowledging our deep 
not knowing. And why that's important as we face this time, here we are, early 21st century, is it challenges the view either that everything will be fine, that we don't need to worry, which is basically unscientific. You know, it's an unhelpful view and it's really about blocking our eyes from the very real risks that we face. But there can be another false certainty, just as you can have false hope. You can also have false hopelessness where things are seen to be so bleak that there's no point doing anything. And I really learned a lot about this from um, working alongside people living with cancer. And some of them have been told by their doctors that there's no hope. You might as well basically pack your bags. There's nothing you can do. And this idea that there's nothing you can do is actually so unhelpful because you may not be able to do things that cause an unexpected remission, although unexpected, medically unexplained remissions do occur in cancer. It's not unknown. Um, and it's very interesting phenomena. People who have been told that you've only got so long to live and then they're still um, going strong five or, or more years later. Um, yes. yes. But, 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 it's, but challenging this sense of I know what's going to happen and it will be awful. And the truth is that between the best and the worst, there's a whole spectrum of what's possible and we can influence which way it goes. We don't control, but we do influence. And every day we have um, choices that can support either one version or a different version of reality. Mm. You know, it's like where we choose to invest mm. our money, what we choose to buy, how we choose to travel, what kind of mm. focus we choose to have in our life. And I think of this as a holistic democracy where every choice point is like a vote. And what we write about in active hope is this idea that we live inside stories and one story is the optimistic story that everything's fine and we don't need to change and we call that business as usual and it's mm. misleading mm -hmm. and it's taking us in a very dangerous direction but another story mm. is we call it the great unraveling and it's the story that everything is just getting worse and worse it's all falling apart and while mm. there is evidence to support the view that unraveling is happening in our world you know if you look at the species becoming extinct we look at the weather disturbance we look at the mass migrations of people displaced by war or climate change and um, we're living in very disturbing times but yeah. but also um, there's a third story which is about recognizing that yes there is business as usual, and sometimes I live in that world. Sometimes I go about my daily business as, as I usually do. And there are also sometimes I get sunk. I watch the news or I read some article and or I watch some YouTube video and I think, yikes, you know, what are we heading for? It just seems like we're heading over the edge of a cliff. And so I know the great unraveling and I know business as usual. But there's a third story where we see both of these and say, I'm not going to give either of these stories the last word. That these stories are the starting point. They're the opening chapter. But where we go from here is really, it's about what do we choose to put ourselves behind? And it's a story right. we call the great turning. It, it, and the great turning is like, well, a lot of great stories I mentioned earlier on. I, I love Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter and all that stuff. And what makes great stories are, are turning points, turning points where mm. initially it seems really bleak and along the way it changes in ways that new things become possible. And that happens in our lives, too. 
you've been through experiences of extreme hardship with illness and I don't know how it was for you Af, but I'm wondering whether there might be times where you thought this is never going to improve where there's times where you might have thought I'm never going to find a way through this and I learned so much from my work in the addictions recovery field where I was working with people who'd completely lost hope of getting better where someone told me he said Chris I've given up giving up because every time I try I fail and he was in what I call the stage of disbelief stage of just yeah, not yeah. believing that it could ever get better but then months later I saw the same person and he was like a, a number of months dry and he'd like he turned a corner so these turning points they can happen mm. in real life too and the great mm. turning is how do we face the mess we're in and take part in a story of turning this idea that crisis mm. can become turning point now mm. I, I, I got more to say on this and I, I, I love the idea of living from a good story you know when we have our heart in the story that we give ourselves to it energizes our lives it, it gives us a sure, reason for sure. wanting to get up in the morning but i just want to check how's this sounding to you so far no it, it makes a lot of sense and i had a, a couple of uh, bits i wanted to add to it and then of course let you free and and share what you want to share that's very very important have you um have you seen any sort of um differences in how people from different backgrounds or demographics uh, adopt and, um, you know, practice some of what you've just shared. That would be intriguing because this concept of multi-generations, you know, where we all accept and acknowledge that different age groups behave a little bit differently for loads of reasons, you know the context, the forces at work at that time, economy, technology, society, and so on. And we're all familiar with the boomers and Gen X and <clears throat> Gen Z, Gen Alpha, and so on. In your work life and in all of the projects you get involved in in your research, are you seeing the reactions and the responses or the anticipation ability vary across these generations? And if so, how? Yes, yeah, a really great question. And I think one of the things is that when we look at the future, um, it looks differently depending on what age group you're in. So, for example, um, babies born in 2020 are something like six or seven times as likely to experience extreme weather events and disturbance from climate change, including crop failures, floods, wildfires and you know that's people born in 2020 but also people becoming adults now are looking into a future and i, I experience it um young people i work with and encounter and come on workshops i, I run that sometimes I, I hear anger at having a future stolen by an older generation and so one of the things is that there's a inequity a generational inequity in terms of the consequences and also causes of climate disaster where it might seem that older generations have benefited in many ways from sort of economic um, development but at the same time in a way that's inflicting harm 
on future generations and um, so that's one thing but also in terms of demographics just in terms of cost of living crisis there's huge intergenerational inequity in terms of things like access to housing you know people were able to buy that their own home um it depends trend, a lot yeah. on how old you are the, the if you're a certain age, you might have got in there while you were lucky, and I count myself amongst those, that the conditions for me when mm. I was 30, 30 years ago, um, I, that's I bought a flat, and I was able to do mm. that, and um, interest rates were higher, but the, the so prices were it's a completely different ball, ball game and so so yes of course demographics come in but i think also just as with any kind of diversity what i find so helpful is looking at what's the common ground we share because also if we're going to tackle the problems if we're going to face the mess we're in we have to do it together if we have one group blaming another for the problems and you get people attack and blame and defense what happens is that you get into a tangle of polarity and opposition rather than standing in solidarity and so i think one of the big questions we need to ask is do we want life to continue now that may seem a stupid question of course we want life to continue but our economic policies aren't designed to support that when we look at the question, what impact will this have on people, say, you know, often the, might, even 10 years in the future is, is a long way in the future. I remember talking at a party with somebody years ago who worked in the city and he was in a long range planning unit for a bank mm -hmm. and long range was looking as far ahead as three months. Now, nowadays, you have computer um, algorithms controlling trades and you may get, you know, people looking even um, just an hour ahead and it might seem like a long time. And some of these um, automated decisions can, you know, think you can get cascades of decision making happening in, in seconds. And um, mm. so the idea that we're holding the question, how will this affect um, in North American um, Native Indian tradition, the Haudenosaunee group of um, native um, uh, people, they had this question with important decisions. They say, how would this affect the seventh generation? The seventh generation being the children of the children of the children and, and so on. So, so like seven generations apart. And uh, I know that important for you being a parent, you're considering, you know, how is it going to be um, for the next generation and that that that's what brings us together is, is like saying well how do we want things to be for the people who are children today but also what about their children and what about their children and if mm. we're having that kind of thinking then whether we're 20 30 40 50 60 or 70 we might find some common ground here because we have to stand together on this mm. Mm. what what worries uh many of us, and I've had many folks on the show, and we've been talking about this concept of conscious capitalism, or, you know, this new breed of capitalism where it's purpose over profit, or somehow they're somewhat balanced. And we haven't really figured out whether it's all doable. <laughs> it's uh, that we've had great conversations about it. And so I'm trying not to be cynical about it, because of course, I have a visibility of the other side, the look into the corporation, the look into the executive, the journey of the executive, whoever it may be, uh, their personal life, their work life. And some of it is, is um, positive, but a lot of it is also concerning because 
you know, it's like this example. I met with the C-level executive a few months back, had some lunch with him, and we were just chatting over a bottle of wine, which is what we ended up um, consuming. He sort of said to me, and I was saying, oh, leadership of tomorrow is about this conscious capitalism, and we've got to do this together. And, you know, the things you and I are discussing right now. And he sort of stopped me, I think, when he was relaxed after a few drinks. And he said, well, let me let me say something to you. And I said, yeah, go on. He said, well, what makes you think that I, me, as a C-level executive, have the ability to switch on compassion and empathy and care and support, like you're describing it like some sort of a, you know, it's an imaginary um, sort of imaginary book and uh, fantasy almost. And I said, well, why why'd you say that? He said, well, I don't have these things at home. You, you're, 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 you know, you are making an assumption that I have compassion at home, love at home, uh, consideration at home, because most of my life I've been busy with the corporate jobs. I've never been at home. So my marriage is not what it should be. My kids don't really engage with me. So how can I just come into work and turn it on? Because I, I don't have it. And so that's the negative side. Obviously, not every executive is in the same situation, we hope. But then I, I think to myself, to your, to your point, um, what steps do we need to take as, as society to be able to affect the next few generations? Because the way I look at it sometimes, and I'm playing devil's advocate, many of these executives, frankly, don't like your example of the short-termism or the long, the long view is three months. Many of them actually do think that way because of the next quarter right? And the results and the bonuses and their job will be there for two years, three years at most. If you're a CEO, maybe five or six, but if you're not a CEO, you, you're around for three, four years, and then you move on and you try and do a different job. So that four year stint, and we all, we figure this out. And this concept of a quarterly reporting is fundamentally flawed. I mean, these are the root causes of, uh, I mean, I would say that the blockers of what you and I are discussing should be the future. And how do you care about the seventh generation? I mean, a, a native Indian community can because they're wired differently. They always have been wired differently, close to nature, uh, close to spirituality and so on. So what, what, what do you see as being the pragmatic solution out there? I mean, it may, you may not have an answer, but I, I'm, in, yeah. I'm intrigued by what you would say. Yeah, no, I, this is a um, real core issue because it comes yeah. down to, is it possible? Can we do anything? And some people would say, Correct. you can't change the world. You know, much as I'd like to, I can't change the world. But I actually think that's such an unhelpful belief. But it's also, it's not true. If only it were true that we can't change the world, we wouldn't have climate change. We wouldn't have a mass extinction event happening in these times. We wouldn't have this mass rise in wildfires and floods and crop failures. And so, you know, we do have an impact. But but also I want to I want to respond to the issue of cynicism because I, I, I work with this and it's one of the reasons why Joanna and I rewrote Active Hope, because in our first right. edition, we talked about the great turning as this historical process, you know, just as we can look back at periods in history like the scientific revolution, the great renaissance, they were larger overarching changes that were included so many smaller elements that built this big picture and that's what we need we need a, a vast change that uh, has so many different contributing elements and um we we came across certainly i came across a lot in workshops people saying well it, it sounds lovely sounds like a nice fairy tale but i can't yeah. see it happening and so my reply to that is well 
Do, would you like it to? Do you hope it will happen? And if you hope it will happen, how can you be active in making that more likely? Right. So that, that's what we mean by active hope. But let's go a step further with that, because what we did in the new edition is that we changed the emphasis from outcome to process. So outcome mm. is, will this big change happen? And you can look at it with conscious capitalism. You know, will there be people moving to a triple bottom line where we're not just looking at the financial gain, we're also looking at the social gain and the ecological gain as well? You know, will that happen? <clears throat> Well, we can say, well, do you hope it will? And so how can we be active? But also, mm -hmm. what would it look like if it were happening through you today? So outcome is, will it happen? By when? Will it happen enough? But process is, what does it look like from moment to moment? What's the process of this change happening? Right. And mm -hmm. every day we have choices that are linked to economics. You know, do I buy this or do I buy that? Do I travel with this way or do I travel with that way? And so right. what we've done is that we, we've talked about the great turning as having three key um, aspects. Well, there's a number of ways that we've written about it, but one of them is to have a great turning. The first turning is turning up turning right, right. up with an intention to play our part you know you're doing this right now Af. you you're turning up you we set up this non-profit this straight talk because you want to mm -hmm. create a conversational space to yeah. look at the big issues that we face so that's turning up yeah. with an intention to play your part but also in turning up there will be some things that you want to turn <clears> away <throat> from there might yeah. be things that you know, you know, I know that when I do this, I know for me, there's too much plastic in my life. I I, I yeah. try and avoid it, but even when I try and avoid it, you know, you look at the shopping, there's still things that, like, why do they have to wrap that in plastic? Why do they have to wrap that in plastic? Yeah. So turning up with an intention to play my part, but I'm going to be turning away from ways of doing, being, thinking, acting, organising ourselves that cause harm. And I'm going to turn towards that which supports the kind of future I hope for. Now we can do that mm. every day and that what we've done is really thinking of active hope as a practice for personal and collective well-being. It's for personal well-being because when we live with active hope there's all kinds of personal well-being benefits like richer sense of meaning in our lives, you know, a sense of agency, a sense of possibility, um, personal empowerment, there's all kinds of gains to that. Our lives actually make more more sense but but also um collective well-being because we're recognizing that something like climate change is down to a wrong turning a wrong turning mm. on a massive scale that we've come to over rely on fossil fuels as a source of energy and although mm. there's more energy resources have been used in the last 50 years than the whole of human history before that but are we happier oh, okay. Are we the happiest generation there's ever been? No, there's no evidence to suggest that we are. Certainly there's some comforts that I appreciate, but in terms of levels of happiness, if anything, they're in decline. Certainly the research seems to back that up, mm. that probably people were happier in the 1950s and 60s than in many ways than they are, are now. And so this mm. question, well, how, how do you reach the people who... Um, who might say, well, 
you know, I, I haven't got any of, of, of that at home. So how can I find it in my work? I haven't got any compassion. And so yeah. one question would be, well, what would you really like? What would you yeah. really, really like? Because actually, you know, big bonuses and things like that, you can get more and more stuff. But there's a wonderful story of, um, I don't know if you've heard it, one of the Nasrudin stories. And what it was is a story of a rich merchant in a marketplace. And he comes along and he holds a big bag of jewels in the air. And he says, I will give this big bag of jewels to the person who teaches me the secret of happiness because at the moment I can't find it. You know, he had all his jewels, but he was very unhappy. And Nasruddin came along and grabbed the bag of jewels and ran off into the distance. And then you get this story of the merchant being furious, chasing after Nasruddin. And you can do it, you can carry this on for a long while, you know, up a hill, down a hill, across a river, through a forest. But anyway, then Nasruddin just plants the bag of jewels in the middle of the path and hides behind a rock. And the merchant kind of comes along, sees a bag of jewels there, and there's this beaming face of happiness you know and and so Nasruddin steps out and says are you happy now and in a way you talked about this executive who he he's he's lost the real treasure of compassion in his home or her home and actually that's the real treasure that's worth so much more than big bonuses you know i call it uh, so say how do you grow treasure inside ourselves what are the things that we really treasure there's a story yeah. of King Midas who um, everything he touched turned to gold. Fantastic, you know, oh. instant wealth increase would do very well on some economic yeah. report. But then he gave his daughter yeah. a hug and she turned to gold as well. And so, yeah. Yeah. you know, we can lose the things that matter most, including this precious earth that we live on. And so how yeah. do we rediscover what really matters? Yeah, I, I mean, you make a great point. I love that story, by the way. And it reminds me of a similar story, if I may. Uh, you know, there is a, there's a man uh, in a town, small old town, a simple life, really. He's sitting on his veranda. I think he's finished farmer, finished his work for the day. He doesn't have to work nine to five. So he's just relaxing, really, on, on one of those rope beds, simple life, and staring at the ceiling. And uh, it's a funny story. So a bunch of MBAs turn up to this town for some research and uh, they're going from house to house and they end up at this guy's house. And so they knock the door, knock on the door and someone opens the door, not him. He's sort of relaxing, staring at the, the sky and they walk in and they say, hey, you know, this is who we are. And he's like, oh, hello. Still lying on his on his bed. And they say, so um, what do you do? And he explains what he does. And, and they say, so when do you finish work? Oh, and he, you know. One o'clock. So what do you do after that? Oh, I just sit here, stare at the ceiling. He said, and they were like, wow, so you don't do anything? Like you just sit here? Imagine what you could do. You know, we have so many ideas. You could build a, a business. You could make more money and so on. So he's like, okay, go on. So they, they're like, yeah, you could build this business, make more money. He said, so what do I do with the money? He said, you could buy more land. Okay. Get other people to plow your land. Okay. You could send your kids to the best schools. You could have anything you want. And the more money you make, the bigger the business gets, the bigger the business gets, the more money you make. He was like, right, okay. And then what? Oh, and then you have choices and options to do what? To just relax, to have a great life. He said, stop there. So why would I do all of that if I'm already relaxed and enjoying myself? I'm in, I'm in peak state already. Go away, go away, go away. And so it made up story, but I can see 
and maybe it's real. This is the reality, right? If you're already in a state of bliss, you're already in a state of calm, you're in a state where you feel good about yourself and, you know, lowest levels of stress, not no stress, but un no, no unnecessary cortisol in your body. You know, and I, I was, I was doing a presentation earlier today and I was saying, you know, imagine, um, visualize that the cortisol is acid. Imagine just, just visualize it. It's acid. So you're stressed out or oh, whatever the stress is. Imagine it's, it's spreading through your body. It's just destroying you, your organs, you know, your, your nerve endings. And that's how bad it is. It really is that bad, you know? And so I think to your point, I mean, I just want to take this down another pathway, which is a little bit more pragmatic to do with generation Z or Z, you know, depending on if the Americans are watching, American um, straight talk fans are watching as well. So with everything you've said and the story that I've shared, we, we get it. Tell me a little bit about your understanding of the Gen Z or the Gen Alpha. Like my kids are two and four. They're the Gen Alpha. They like they, we don't even know what's gonna what they're going to go through. I'm getting ready for it. But the Gen Z have a certain way of behaving. They, to your point, the stress levels, the anxiety levels. I'm sure in your coaching and your counseling, you also work with uh, in the in the field of addiction or that you talked about earlier. Tell us more about that because we we don't often consider the sort of support someone needs when they have an addiction. I mean, I would say the mobile phone, I'm not sure if it's come into the categories, into in the category, the conventional categories, but the mobile phone is an addiction. Let's be honest. You're like a Pavlov's dog. You know, as soon as it goes buzz, you pick it up and you're fully alert on it. And that takes you away from being mindful. Tell me about two things. So Gen Z or Gen Z, what's your view of them and what's the future for them? What should we do to help them? And then uh, a little bit more about this whole area of addiction. Very, very interesting. Yes. So, and I'll, I'll bring those together um, because yeah. I've got a, a, an example of um, some really interesting work that a colleague of mine has done. But before I do, right. I just want to say I love that story that you told. And also it's a true story. Um, mm. Helena Norbert Hodge, she visited Ladakh in northern India in the 1970s before it became popular on the tourist trail. And one thing that really struck her was that um, this was a place where um, the climate was not exactly conducive to like easy living. You know, they were cut off by snow for long periods of months of the year. And it was harsh, like a harsh life, but she was struck by high levels of happiness. And she wrote a book called Ancient Futures because she visited Ladakh over a 40 year period and sort of followed it up. And in that time of visiting Ladakh, she saw a rise in depression. She saw suicides having in young, happening in young people that was completely unheard of before. She saw because what was happening was that the, the life that they had, which was really a kind of collective shared experience of supporting each other, followed mm -hmm. more the Western model of fragmentation, falling apart, people racing against each other, competing against each yeah. other. But also with yeah. all of that anxiety, yeah. you talked about the acid, the cortisol, you know, that that were it was yeah. kind of like a, a, a disease. And um, Oliver James wrote a book called Affluenza. Affluenza is distress related to social or physical appearance. And it's a psychological virus that we can catch. And there's been examples of parts of the world that didn't have television. And when they started having television, they started having higher levels of distress linked to 
this physical and social appearance um and right. so the social appearance is you know am i getting on am i getting ahead i should be higher I should be climbing up the tree um d sort of doing better so it is happening and also what's different about younger people today i guess one of the things is the media that they consume right that um I, I remember growing up in a time where, you know, remember colour television coming in for the first time. It was like a big, exciting thing when I was a kid. But if you're growing up with kind of instant availability to, and it's not just availability, but there's something here about the loss of control over truth verif verification. So you can also be exposed to kind of tidal waves of misinformation that make it very yes, confusing yes. to make sense of things. I think there's a, yes, a loss of um, trust in sources of authority, a loss of trust <clears throat> in uh, science, a loss of trust in um, even that the idea of people talk about the post-truth age, which is incredibly dangerous. Like, how do we navigate in the future if we can't even um, be taking in the kind of signals that we're getting from scientists about the dangers we're facing but in mm. terms of what do i know about um you know motivates um younger people a friend of mine was involved in a study looking at how do you help um young ad sort of older teenagers who are using high levels of alcohol and drugs how do you help them discover a different pathway to happiness? And so she set up a positive psychology group teaching psychological strategies to improve mood. And this is the work I've been mm. involved in. It links to my addictions recovery work too, because in a sense, people have chosen chemical pathways to joy that lead right, to short-term right. benefit, but long-term cost. And you actually get caught in a loop yeah. where I don't like how I feel. I take this stuff. I feel better, but the effects wear off, but they not only wear off, they amplify the distress. So it's like the problems yeah. go, but they come back with interest. The problems go, but they come back with interest. And you can get hooked on anything that does that instant relief, but long term amplification. And that's mm. also the core problem with our sustainability crisis, too, that we're seeking short term benefits, whether it's the um, the short term quarterly returns and the bonuses and things, mm. but in a way that creates long term harm. So anyway, my friend mm. Miriam Akhtar, she's a well known positive psychology author, and we've talked together for like a dozen years or so. We run a positive psychology course together. She taught them things like um, savoring. Now, savouring. Mm -hmm. Savouring is where you give your attention to what you like about something. Now, you can do this in any room where you can say the first thing is, is um, I call it appreciative gaze. Your a gaze is directed by the question, what do I appreciate here? And you can do this. You can look around. You can say, OK, what do I appreciate here? And I'm already looking in your room and actually seeing some of the things that I appreciate as a musician. I love this mm -hmm. look of your mm -hmm. guitar and the picture up there. But you might have favorite things. So, and, and if you're watching this, by the way, I'm inviting you to do this, too. And what I'm going to suggest is that you look around you for five things you like, love, or appreciate. And when you found five, you just clap like that. Mm. Five things. So I invite you to do this. When you found five things, you clap. And, and if you found five things, you might do it again. You might go for the double clap, you know, when you get to 10. So you can clap twice when you get to 10. Like that. And, 
and, and just noticing, Af, I, I don't know whether you feel exactly the same as three minutes ago or different in any way. I, well, I just, re I just recognized that there were things in the room that made me feel happy. I knew that anyway, if you were to ask me, is there stuff in that room that made me happy? Yes, I've got my instruments here and, and so on. But by looking at them again, I gave them, that's where my attention's gone. So I'm like, oh yeah, of course. And it's a, it's a reinforcement that, wow, I'm grateful that it's here. And yeah, I do, it made me happy looking at them. Yeah. So I made, my environment felt better. Ah, we can all do this every day. There's a saying that one of the mm -hmm. secrets of happiness is not so much having what you want, it's wanting what you have. And yeah. so, yeah. and how we feel is influenced by the focus of our attention. I'm not saying that we should only look at the things we love, but actually what happens is when we give attention to appreciation and gratitude, we yeah. nourish ourselves in a way that gives us a stronger starting point to then look at the things that are difficult. It's like we resource yeah. ourselves. It's like, how do we have unexpected resilience? This is one of the ways in. We resource ourselves by paying attention to gratitude and inactive hope. We guide people through a whole load of gratitude practices. And like, how do we face the mess we're in? The preparation stage of change. We need to get ourselves right. in a more resource, steady place to then yeah. look at what may be unbearable to look at. But we're, we're, we've yeah. kind of take, we've taken the preparation and, and so also there's something here about how do we break free of the constant craving hunger that just wants more and more because it's gobbling up mm. our world. And one of yeah, the ways we do is. that is by learning how to achieve satiation. You know, satiation is how do we uh, satisfy our appetites? And, and it's something about actually appreciating what's there. And what's, what's interesting about this is that actually, I don't know whether you do, that, do this, but I do this sometimes. I buy things in excitement and then I put them away and forget about them. And so mm. it's not even as though I'm getting that much value from some of the things that I spend my money on. But if I focus mm. on wanting what I have, say, well, you know, what have I got in the last year? And how do I really squeeze out the joy from the decisions, the spending choices I've already made? Because what we're doing here, yeah. this is conscious capitalism. It's our having a conscious awareness of where we are, steering our choices that impact on economic behavior. And actually saying, you know, what would it be like if we were to choose consciously to live happily with less? Now, in climate work, there's the, the model contraction and convergence. So contraction and convergence is recognizing that in some parts of the world, we emit far too much carbon dioxide. But in other parts of the world, they're struggling even to have some of the basic essential developmental pathways, you know, getting supplies of clean, safe water and food transport sufficient heating safe cooking and that kind of thing and so they may need to increase and so the contraction is what needs to happen in industrialized economies but convergence is what we need to do We're talking about um, diversity how do we welcome and create safety for all of our human family on this planet we live at a yeah. time where hundreds of millions of people are starving you know it's kind of like wow you know yeah. And it's so easy to forget. So contraction of convergence. But if we say you should have less, then the environmental movement just become stealers of joy. 
But actually, mm. I'm really interested in sustainable happiness. Sustainable happiness mm. is how can you have happiness in the, mo the moment that doesn't steal it away from somewhere else in time and space. So yeah. heavy drinking in an evening might bring you joy in that moment, but it might rob happiness from the next day if you end up with a hangover. You know, we can see that yeah. many moments of joy can steal it from somewhere else in our own time. But also, if we have a cheap T-shirt that's basically produced under sweatshop working conditions, then we have the short term hit that, you know, benefit of happiness, but it's stealing joy away from someone somewhere else in the world. And so sustainable happiness is how do we bring mm. in happiness that is fair to others? But even better, mm. how can we have happiness that has positive ripples through time and uh, time and space? How do we do something mm. that is enjoyable in the moment but has benefit, like you are doing now? You know, you set mm. up this Straight Talk channel because you wanted to make a difference in some way. You wanted to do some good. It's not just a commercial enterprise. Yeah. It's a non-profit that you yeah. set up. And I'm guessing that you have a feeling I call afterglow. Afterglow is where you have a warm feeling of satisfaction after you've done something you feel good about. And it's yeah, well deserved. Sure. You get that from this, yeah, from this channel. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, I every time I have, uh, I mean, I would say I'm, I'm somewhat addicted to the experience because <clears throat> in a positive way, because every time I have these dialogues, like with you, and I had one earlier this week, and then I have some next week, you know, I'm, I'm speaking with and engaging with these fantastic minds, their knowledge, their wisdom. And often I do like to interview authors because they've invested their, their time to study and research a specific area or topic. And it's a privilege to hang out with them for about an hour or so. And not to cover everything, but to, to that small um, moment in time, an hour, you're able to then engage in this sort of a dialogue, which is so enriching for me. And then I become the champion and I become the mouthpiece trying to educate many. I have to say, though, that um, there are not enough of us, there are not enough people out there who are maverick thinkers, who are, they accept that they're misfits because they're not the majority, and who understand some of these issues you're raising. I, I, I genuinely. And, you know, I, and I realized that today and yesterday there was some stuff that happened outside of my world because I've got caught up in my world to such an extent where I only hang around with people like us because we think in this way. You know, we're thinking about like climate, climate realism, diversity economics, the digital world order, the good stuff and the bad stuff, you know, being human. Now, these might sound like, well, that's a great thing to do, but actually a lot of people don't even, you know, they say, I don't have time to think about these, you know, crazy ideas. You know, it's all sort of, you know, fantasy. I've just got to get the practical stuff. That I've got to pay my bills, got to go to work, I've got to do my numbers, and then that's it. And, you know, I feel I feel quite sad to to hear that, you know. And uh, and I, I it's funny because I see that the older generation that were actually the 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 instigators uh, of some of this stuff, uh, they they essentially have now moved on. Like I said to earlier on, I've been interviewing people who are, you know, later on in their in their years, much older. They've now reflected and said, actually, you've got to be more human enough. Tell your straight talk uh, community and all the straight talkers to invest in being more human. And that doesn't mean disregard technology or shut it off, but limit it. 
because you know the more AI you introduce, mobile devices you introduce, the more AR VR you have, the more it will draw you in because it is designed. It is designed very cleverly to draw you in. And we know that through documentaries like The Social Dilemma and various others, where we know that it's, you know, it's no different to a cigarette. I mean, I'm not comparing a cigarette and social media, um, but in a, in a way, both cause an addiction. And social yes. media is an addiction. And so and when I ask these people, um, you know, well, why do you say this is like fantasy? And, you know, I've got the you've got the time to do this. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I engineered my life to do it this way. But they, uh, when I asked them, what do you do then? Like in, in your free time? I don't have any free time, but what do you do when you finish work? Well, you know, and you then you start to discover some of them have hobbies like sports or something, or they go out and stuff. But the, the phone, the mobile phone, we know now statistically how many hours we spend on social media apps is, is their lives, whether it's TikTok or it's, you know, uh, Instagram or it's, tic, uh, you know, Tinder, for example, the dating app, that's a whole whole different discussion around the makeup of a relationship these days and how fickle and superficial it can be. But I think I worry, I worry for this generation and I, I you know, a little bit, and I, I'm trying to affect my, um, you know, the, the way my children will think about this who are much younger. I, ex I accept being in technology that the virtual world and the metaverse is going to, is going to be a reality. I accept that there's going to be much more convenience. I accept technology will overshadow our human lives unless, you know, we, I go out of my way to create some sort of a, an environment where uh, they don't have devices. I mean, if you look at all of the CEOs of the large technology companies, no surprise, many of them didn't allow their kids to go on social media apps. You know, they protected them. Many of them even limited mobile phone time smartphone time. So because they realize how they've been designed, they realize the net impact of this negative impact over a, a course of, of many, many years. So uh, I, I love what I do, um, Chris. I think my, my final few thoughts is related to, I guess, the future now, right? So we've talked about the, the tough stuff. And I think you've, you've shared that beautifully and articulated it. And it's worrying, no doubt. But I think let's be let's be a little bit more optimistic about this, and let's try and figure out if we had a Harry Potter moment, like you talk about Harry Potter, we had a magic wand opportunity. You had a magic wand opportunity. What would you do? What do you think we should do? Uh, wave your magic wand and things change. What would you do if I gave you that power yes. for ten minutes? So I think one of the things is that there's a myth that the way to a better life is having more and more things. And that in a way you talked about addiction, there is a kind of addiction mm. to stuff that is killing our world. And so what I would do is I would throw my life into the story of recovery. And I would live that recovery. And we talk about recovery from, you know, recovery from this or that. People might recover from different things. But if we're holding the question, mm -hmm. what is it we recover towards? Every change has mm -hmm. two directions. There's what you're moving away from and there's what you're moving towards. What is it that we sure. want to move towards? And there is a better way. And so I think of this sustainable happiness, the great turning. It's like, okay, what is it we want to turn towards? What is it we deeply want? And in addictions right. recovery, I found so helpful the idea of find the want behind the should. We're not saying, you know, should, 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 you must 
cut down your carbon emissions in a way that can feel all kind of controlling and restrictive. We're actually saying, no, there's a mm. better way here. And I'm developing a, a, a kind of um, a, a well-being practice called SUHA. SUHA stands for sustainable happiness, and it's kind of like a playful martial arts. And so when you mm -hmm. encounter kind of difficult feelings or difficult experience, you know, you kind of take them in in a kind of Tai Chi kind of way, but you also give a response, a response that's right. actually pushing back and offering back and supporting well-being. And so in terms of what would I do is like, well, I, it's what I'm doing. I put myself behind active hope, behind suha, behind well-being, and actually look at how do we learn ways to have better lives that are also good for our world. And the term I use for this is mm. the beautiful life. A beautiful life is good for you and it's also good for other people in the world. How do we live that right. way and we make that the default setting? Now, you said at the moment mm. there's not so many people, but that's been true of every major social movement in history. And True. Um, True. there's an understanding of social diffusion, how ideas spread, that you tend to get early adopters, and this is the same with tech change too. Early adopters, maybe about 15% of the population, get very interested in something early. But what they do is that they find a way to make it work in a way that sure. then the early majority, which might be another 35% of people, begin yeah. to catch on and experiment with. And when once yeah. they do, yeah. you reach a tipping point where a late majority will say, hey, I'm interested in this too. And you can plot that sequence of all kinds of changes in our world. And there might be 15% of people who are resistant right to the last, who never quite get it. Mm. And I wouldn't spend a lot of time arguing with them. Um, but so I, I can kind of think I'm with you. I'm with you here and now. Our magic mm. wand is to explore for ourselves as early adopters saying, could there be a better way? Let's research mm. it. Let's find it. And when we find it, we bring it back to the community and we say, hey, this here, the group I mentioned mm. earlier, the young hoodies using high levels of alcohol and um, drugs, their alcohol consumption, drug consumption really fell when they found other ways of um, finding joy and, and and positive emotions other than drink or drug use. And that was what my work mm. was in the um, addictions recovery world too. And uh, uh, someone I know in recovery, he said, I didn't just give up drinking, I threw it away. What right. would it be like if we found something that was so much better than what the kind of capitalism model, whatever you want to call it, the consumer worldview offered people. It was so much better that actually we say, yeah, this is what we want. Mm. And so our mm. job is like if we find that in the places we do find it, and I, that's what I do. I set up an online college called collegeofwellbeing.com. I set up a right. free online course at activehope.training. It's another website where I guide okay. people through this, the stuff in the book. Uh, through a whole series of videos there's about nine hours of video it's released in weekly installments wow. just go to activehope.training and you you get like a little dollop of videos every week that you guide people through a process designed to strengthen our capacity to act for positive change in the world and if we grow Fantastic. the skills it's like this is a much better game to play you know i could do space invaders i could engage in these things and i've got one of these vr masks and it's great fun but actually there's a real game a real emergency it's much more meaningful because what a lot of these some um, 
computer games do is they try and lure people into a story that seems meaningful but actually real life can be much more meaningful and we can discover mm. the things at home that are the real treasures mm. 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 absolutely i'm so bought into what you're saying and it's refreshing to and and gratifying to hear what you're saying because it's you know it, this requires many of us to come together to to shake up a system uh, it's not going to be easy that's for sure and we may have to be patient and uh how patient i don't know because i don't know what the catastrophic impacts will be of hanging tight and not being radical enough yet i do feel hopeful about the fact that at least in the west having studied the east especially places like india where i'm originally from that there is an awakening i see in the west that we've never seen before and a sense of awareness if in fact the work you're doing is is uh, a byproduct of that where spirituality and yoga uh, and you know understanding the consciousness understanding deeds values uh, maybe religion gave some of that religions religions eroded now and you know people don't go to the the, the holy uh, sort of the temple or the church as much as they used to. That's a, that's another topic, discussion. And whilst I, I'm not uh, either for or against religion, uh, it did give you a, a sense of good and bad. And it made you a little bit conscious of the fact that, oh, oh my God, I haven't given, uh, or I have not been ethical, or I haven't been right. So, you know, there, there was an element of that. Now that's eroded, there's no replacement for it, really. And I think, in a way, the replacement is all of these teachings. You know, authors like you... Um, and others who are writing these fantastic books that are about issues that are real, uh, resilience, uncertainty, you know, hope, uh, the great turning, beautiful life, and so on. And that creates that sense, it's a positive aura, it's like a light, as opposed to the darkness, where you think, actually, there is there, there are people who who have a way forward, like some form of salvation, right? And it doesn't have to be drugs, and it doesn't have to be chemicals, and it doesn't have to be me going down this pathway where actually there is this amazing world that exists up in that world. That's what it's about. I mean, Straight Talk is about accelerating knowledge and awareness to over a million people. I want to get this to over a million people for free. So even if you watch 10 minutes of something once in your life, hopefully a minute of the 10 minutes will make you think a little bit differently about who you are and what you stand for. You've done exactly that today, uh, Chris, and I thank you for coming on the show. And, um, you know, we could talk for hours and I really hope one day we'll meet face-to-face, -face, not just in the virtual environment, because there's so much I'd like to get involved in with you and help you with your cause, equally seek your support and counsel and what we're trying to do with Straight Talk and some of the other nonprofit work that I'm doing. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really hope you've uh, enjoyed it. It's been a good use of your uh, hour. And, uh, you know, with that in mind, I, I would love some initial reactions, some feedback perhaps as to how it's been for you today, some words uh, that we'll take on board and, and, and live by and do better with as well. So what the words that come up for me is common purpose. Yeah, yeah. I feel common purpose with you. It's a real pleasure to meet you, to be alongside you. And if we, you know, it actually, it improves our lives. 
when we have a sense of common purpose and there's this big challenge okay how to face the mess we're in you know just number one is to acknowledge we are facing a mess and if you find yourself all shaken up by that then that shows that you've noticed and it shows that you care but then right. becomes the story about how do we prepare ourselves how do we strengthen us our capacity to find and play our part and we need to have training we need to kind of train each other we need to mm. seek out the sources of inspiration the tools learning the allies the the capacities the skills the strategies that will help us and that's what you're doing you're mm. scouring the world you're kind of saying okay who's got something to offer let me give you some space i'd love to hear mm. what you have mm. to say and so mm. i just want to say mm. thank you thank you for your good work yeah, no, my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. We've enjoyed it thoroughly. Where can people find you? I know you, if you don't mind just repeating the websites again, just so people uh, can make a note. So I have two main areas of work. One is around personal well-being, but also personal and collective well-being at collegeofwellbeing.com. And I've okay. got this course in Suha training, sustainable happiness training. I've got a course in listening skills that begins next week. Um, so I do kind of all kinds of work around different aspects of well-being, positive psychology, resilience. And then I also do work more around what helps us face the mess we're in collectively in our planet time that we're in now climate change mass extinction, uh, vast inequality. And that's at active hope info is about the book active hope dot training is a free online course excellent great um hopefully everyone's noted that down we'll we'll share that in the email that goes out and the newsletter that goes out later as well uh, thank you very much uh, chris it's been amazing for our straight talk viewers if you're watching the show click on the on the right there for for um subscription of this uh channel and uh, the bell as well so you're notified of when the next episode is released. Thank you again. Have a wonderful year ahead, a, fun, a wonderful week ahead, a wonderful day ahead. We shall keep in touch and maybe have you back for your next book or when you release your next book. Is there a plan to do that? Maybe at some point? Uh, I'm developing the online training. That's that's my focus now. But yes, I've got, oh, I've okay. got some ideas and I'd love to tell you about them when they're um, more developed. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, uh, Chris Johnston, the author of Active Hope. Go, go out there, buy the book. We'll post this out on social media. Be well, take care, good night, uh, good morning, if it's morning for you, and of course, good afternoon. Uh, looking forward to the next show. Be well, may the force be with you. <laughs>